In this episode of Zero to One Million, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Kyle York. Kyle York was the CRO at a company called Dine. He joined when they were about at three million in revenue and led them to over 100 million in revenue and a successful acquisition by Oracle for over $600 million. And his story is just absolutely incredible. One of the best go-to-market leaders I've ever spoken with in my life and just an all-around great guy. Now he's focusing on a venture firm and also a consulting firm called York IE, really helping SaaS companies scale faster, more efficiently, and really taking all the knowledge that he learned throughout his career and helping founders reach that same success. So really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. All right, with me today, I have Kyle York. Kyle, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And so you're doing a lot of things. Um, you're known for being CRO of a company called Dine that Oracle bought for a lot of money. And now you're running York IE. Um, just to you know, kick things off, what is York IE? What does it do? Um, I want to go back to, to the Dine story, but um, for the audience, I'd love for you to just kind of go over what that is. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of York IE. Uh, we basically are as a hybrid investment uh, advisory and operational growth firm. So in essence, we do early stage, uh, seed stage investments. Uh, we focus predominantly on enterprise software, B2B SaaS infrastructure, but we layer on uh, go-to-market growth-oriented consulting advisory services, and we make it all hyperscalable by our fuel platform, which is our uh, internal market data analytics, competitive intelligence platform that we've built uh, to fuel the investments business and fuel the consulting advisory business. Eventually we plan on bringing that also public to the market as a SaaS platform that people can self-serve and buy. Uh, but you know, we'll get there uh, soon enough. We have a lot, of, a lot of things we're working on. That's awesome. So you essentially, to just boil it down simply, you invest in companies and you kind of roll up your sleeves and you help them grow. Yeah, and we'll work with companies we don't invest in too if there's a good fit for our service modules. We've basically modularized our services into uh, market and product strategy, business growth strategy, and marketing communication services. Um, so they're really you know well defined. Um, we've tried to sort of downscope what you might you know work with a management consultancy for, or a large scale analyst firm for, or a large scale marketing or public relations firm for and tried to package it into a more, I think, entrepreneurially aligned uh, uh, partner. And so again, we'll, we'll definitely uh, layer it onto the investments, but we will also work with companies in those engagements uh, without investing. That's awesome. And I think this will transition well into uh, the dying story. So I assume a lot of the stuff that you're doing today comes from what you personally did at, at Dine. Um, when did you join Dine? How did that happen? What was the background? Because uh, your run yeah, was a, absolutely epic. And I, I we had talked previously, and I have so much respect for people that can scale a company to the point that you did. So what was the start? Um, let's go there. Yeah, I mean, it's a crazy story. I mean, so I'm, I'm today in Manchester, New Hampshire. That's where we built Dine. That's my home city. I, I grew up in a neighboring town. We're about an hour north of Boston. And uh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I was living in California, uh, working for my first tech startup. And I got a phone call one day from one of the co-founders of Dine 
uh, Jeremy Hitchcock, who was its CEO. And they were looking for a go-to-market leader to come in who had some experience, but not too much to help them take what was their um, more consumer-oriented e-commerce, delivered via e-commerce technology to help you name your home network, uh, put a domain name on your home router. Uh, they were trying to take that to the to the enterprise and, and create a B2B sales engine uh, and build the business. Um, but, you know, like many good entrepreneurs, uh, technologists, engineers, CEOs do, they built the technology before they built any semblance of a go-to-market to attack the market. And so I saw it as a really unique opportunity to uh, kind of take on an executive role. I was only in my mid-20s. The other founders were in their mid-20s, moved back home from California and, you know, joined it about 15 people. Uh, we were about 3 million of ARR at the time, but it was all... Uh, $20 tickets uh, through the e-com storefront and uh, no enterprise customers. And we were able to take the business uh, to 100 million ARR, uh, 500 people, uh, three global offices, uh, 5,000 enterprise customers. That's crazy. And the enterprise customers were like Amazon, Twitter, JP Morgan, Netflix. Uh, it was the who's who of the most trafficked websites on the internet who were uh, trying to optimize the performance of uh, insecurity of their infrastructure. And they wanted, you know, to kind of die and live the domain name layer to do a lot of like intelligent routing and uh, almost be, we call ourselves the Switzerland of the internet. You know, we would help arbitrate uh, clouds and, you know, uh, hosting environments, self-hosted environments, multi-cloud uh, for these super high volume uh, web uh, websites. And, I grew into the company's chief revenue officer. You know, we did 11 acquisitions. We ended up raising 100 million of growth in private equity uh, by the time we sold, um, and ended up being the GM of the company after we after we sold the business to Oracle uh, for about three years and helped run Oracle Cloud Strategy as they've tried to transition. I mean, they're in the news a lot lately with TikTok and Zoom and uh, yeah. lots of other things. That was a team that I that I helped drive strategy for for a few years. So just, yeah, a wild run, learned a lot uh, from every scale uh, of growth. So obviously the business was a lot different when you first joined than when it, what it is today. Can you talk to me about, about that transition? Like going from, when you left the business, what was the average ACB? Was it enterprise? When I, when I left like after Oracle? Yeah, sure. Oh man, I mean, the deals we were doing in Oracle were total six figure average ARR per customer. Um, but when we built the company, I mean, dying to 100 million, our average enterprise deal size was 18K ARR. Um, our largest uh, commercial, it was actually public sector uh, account was 4 million. Um, our largest enterprise commercial deal was about 1.2 million. And, you know, I think we had like a handful of over a million, maybe a dozen over 500K, you know, maybe a couple, few dozen over 100K. And then tons of deals that were, you know, 200, 500 a month uh, type of deals. And we still scaled, crazily enough, we still scaled the consumer e-commerce business, um, which became less consumer and more small home office, SMB, um, $30 a year tickets. Uh, and we ended up scaling that to around 25 million itself of the 100 million from the three. I wanna, I wanna so it's very on, diverse. I want to hone in on this because you work with a lot of startups. And I'm sure 90% of them come to you and say, hey, we need to go up market. We need to sell into mid-market. We need to get away from SMB, enterprise, whatever. And you guys did that at time. You had 20 a month on average yeah. deals. Then you're up into 
to six feet. What are some of the learnings or some of the things that you did or how did the product evolve? So that's a crazy long question, but yeah, no, I mean, listen, I think, um, now that I'm an investor more full time, you know, private equity firms, growth equity firms, they tell all their customers, all their, all their investments to go up market. Why don't you have more enterprise accounts? Why do you have more six figure accounts? Um, I think that's the fool's errand. And I think the enterprise field selling motion is incredibly cost prohibitive to 99.9% of startups. Uh, most startups, even when they bi win big customers, they land and expand those customers in, in SaaS, right? Um, whether it's the freemium model, whether it's bottoms up kind of developer oriented selling motions, inside sales, BDR selling motions. The story I like to tell the most is you'll love this. Um, Oracle, when they first signed a contract to be a dying customer back in 2012, they paid us $600 a month. What? I mean, the procurement process wasn't even worth it, but yeah. we did it anyway because we, we saw them as a strategic logo. That they were paying us around 900 grand of ARR when they acquired us in 2016. Wow. And not to mention, they gave us a multiple on our revenue. So in essence, they gave us a multiple on their own revenue to us. Um, so right. talk about the best ROI deal I've ever won in my career, because uh, it ended with a $600 million exit. Um, but that model, it's really, truly, I think, understanding your, your market, your buyer personas, your value proposition, your repeatable use cases, and your go-to-market motion to support them. Like, like, it's okay if it's land or expand. You don't need to win the $900,000 ARR deal, the first deal you want. Win with that. Yeah. Um, and we just learned really quickly that we could get people up and running on our technology. We could have, you know, 35 to 40 day sales cycles. Um, we win the account and we could expand into more consumption or more features or function or capability over time. So and that, that model really proved out for us. Was that kind of the go to market strategy? It was more of a land and expand. It wasn't a big, you know, it was grow. The totally. Yeah. Um, Rather than just yeah, and even if we chase, yes, I call it an inside out model. Like we didn't have field sales scattered, you know, in all regions of the world. We basically said, you know, we, we, we had we had strategic and enterprise teams that were targeting those that segmentation. But we actually um, segmented based on Alexa rank, so web traffic rank, because yeah. the more web traffic you had, the more cloud computing services you uh, consumed, the more money you'd pay us, right? So we ended up. Uh, even in those deals, though, if we were winning a deal with Netflix or Twitter or Amazon or Airbnb, um, you know, we'd just try to win whatever deal we could out of the gate, even if it meant the QA deal, uh, you know, or if it meant a sub second tier domain you hadn't heard of. Uh, yeah. We'd just get in the door and we'd earn it and prove it by the technology, of course, and its performance, but also based on the relationship cultivation and our ability uh, to drive account expansion. Um, we also just had a ridiculously loyal customer community. Uh, they became such great evangelists and advocates for the business. And, you know, a lot of these folks that we sold, these system administrators, uh, site reliability engineers, tech ops folks, personas, they'd jump around, they'd move from one company to the other, or they'd have friends at other companies, or they'd be going to the O'Reilly conferences or the Interrupt conferences. And, you know, they'd just walk in the door to their friends who were working at the next great uh, fast growth startup or the the, the, the word, other web monsters companies. Word of mouth starts to kick in and you get referrals from people. I, like I mean, that. in the early days, it was hor it was horribly hard, right? I mean, it was like we had this consumer story. A lot of these uh, tech geeks, you know, knew us from their home network, right? Because they were giving themselves like 
you know, Kyle's, you know, uh, kitchen.com and, you know, looking at their, you know, CCTV cameras or something, yeah. right? Um, they were doing like home hacking using Dyne. That actually made it, that was actually like good in one hand that they knew who you were, but it was also a negative because they thought of us as consumer and not good enough for their company, right? Um, yeah. So we had a lot of a kind of brand challenge early on. What we really did, I think was the smartest thing we did, and I recommend this to all startups even today, is we we really defined the four or five key verticals that we were a must-have for, not a need-to-have for. Um, and, you know, it was e-commerce, it was SaaS businesses, it was media, it was ad tech. I mean, those four verticals, they, they only exist because of the internet and their web application or infrastructure. Right. So they needed us more and they were very high traffic. So what that meant is, you know, if a bank reached out or a healthcare company reached out or a pharmaceutical company reached out, those guys from an internet performance perspective wanted to look more like Twitter or Zappos than they did like the other banks or the other pharmaceutical companies. Right. And so we quarter, uh, sort of created this like FOMO um, uh, strategy inside of our go-to-market that I think is really how we drove the top of funnel demand. Nice. And with all the startups that you work with now, and as an investor, I'm sure you're one of the people saying like, hey, you got to go to market. Or maybe you're not. No, um, I don't at all. Okay. Well, in that case, I'm sure a lot of the founders are still saying, I want to go up market. Um, the other investors some... are saying it definitely too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm joking here too. Um, but in terms of like mistakes that you see, you know, they have a great product. Maybe it's serving a segment of the market that, you know, for them to go up market, it's going to be very, you know, capital. Uh, there's going to be a lot of capital requirements. There's going to be some... Yeah. Maybe there's some SOC 2 reporting requirements you're going to have to do. All this like enterprise stuff, maybe they're not ready for. How would you like advise a startup um, looking to go up market? Common mistakes that you see. Um, I love the land and expand model where you can essentially get your foot in the door and then grow the account value over time. Um, but what are like common mistakes? Yeah. Like what? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think all this stuff, like we do an exercise with all the companies we work with. It's our, it's our messaging hierarchy exercise, which is basically, you know, vision, you know, mission, uh, descriptors, taglines, elevator pitch, who you are, what you do, how you do it, who you do it for, you know, all the way down to uh, market segments, key industry verticals, buyer personas, down to value prop, down to repeatable use cases, down to product descriptions. When we do that with people, and then we start to look at the comparative and competitive landscape, pretty quickly you can sort of sniff test um, what the cost or uh, price value uh, trade-off is for your service, right? So I think what happens too much to startups is they, they get starry eyes that just because it's a big company, they'll pay you more. But it really depends on um, your core value, the competitive set. Are you displacing a legacy player that's costing them hundreds of thousands, or are you brand new entrant into the market that no one's ever heard of, right? So I always advise people to sort of slow it down, like write their business strategy down, look at the data and do cohort analysis of their customer base. And really ask yourself, like, am I an enterprise sale or am I not an enterprise sale? And, and it's really more rooted for me in the go-to-market motion than it is in the, in the pricing than it is anything else. I mean, the economics need to make sense. An example I'll give you of this is there's a company I'm on the board of that's a later stage company, more $40, 50000000 million ARR company now. Um, 
it was interesting for a long time, the company's difference between an enterprise customer and a mid-market customer was a $7,500 ARR delta between like 55,000 a year mm-hmm. and 62,500. But they were selling the 62,500 guys with $400,000 fully loaded OTE, uh, with OTE um, compensated field salespeople scattered around the country. And they were selling just for $7,000 cheaper you know, low cost, younger, uh, high velocity BDR inside sales model um, out of out of uh, Canada where they're located. So, so when you start to look at these things, it's really the go to market match with the pricing model and the market. And again, I just don't think a lot of people slow it down and like think about that and actually educate whoever's telling them to do that whether or not it's actually a possible thing for them to go out market. I mean, the best companies in the world look at the HubSpots, even the. Atlassians, uh, the MailChimps, uh, a lot of these guys have been very content being a more SMB to mid-market play and have gotten massive doing it, including Shopify. Uh, these are enormous companies who have sort of stayed true to their market segmentation. It doesn't mean they say no to an enterprise in a, in a seven-figure deal. It just means that their go-to-market's more built for what they can make as repeatable, scalable, and sustainable, sustainable as possible. Nice. And so when companies think about going on market, what do you, what's like the number one indication you think would be, is it maybe a big company kind of starts inbound and the conversation starts that way and the kind of natural sort of pull up market? I think, uh, it, yeah, it's got to be proven a little bit more by the data, like by either the data in your marketing funnel or the data in your bottoms up land and expand uh, uh, go to market motion. I think you got to look at Look at it that way. You can't just say we're going to be an enterprise software company. We're going to go after the Fortune 500, right. and we're going to, you know, show you a financial model, Mr. Investor or board that has, you know, we're going to win this many X number of deals per year at $500,000 per. Right? Anyone can write that down on paper, um, but actually proving that out and proving the repeatability of that, um, I think, is one of the biggest challenges of a company. Call it like sub one, sub five ARR, like. That's when you find that out, like how many X number of customers at Y ARR per customer. That's how you're going to scale your model all the way out into the out years, right? So you really need to be able to um, prove that out in that kind of up to one, up to 5 million ARR time period. Nice. And so, you know, transitioning over to what you're doing now um, with York IE, tell me more about like, how did you start that? What was the thought process behind it? Um, let's go to the early days of, sure. of that. You, you've, you've now exited Dine. Well, yeah. Or let's actually, can we can we spend a moment on that? Like you, you exit Dine. Did you do anything cool? You guys sold the company for $600 million. Did you? Yeah, well. well or was it so business here's the deal. A lot, alongside building Dine, right? Um, and maybe this was out of fear early on because I was moving back to New Hampshire, not you know, not to Sunnyvale, right? I was, I basically started advising and angel investing really early, like probably long before I should have, right? And yeah. part of that was to create some portfolio diversification, but also like career prospects and opportunity in case dying wasn't a good company or I sucked, right? It was like one or the other, right? So I had to be yeah. sure that I had um, some, you know, some diversity. So a lot of what I'm building in York IE is, what I was moonlighting on 1% of my time. And, and when I was leaving um, Dine and Oracle, 
the challenge was, it was, I was like, like, if you look at the market landscape, I had to like make a choice, be an investor or be an operator. And I was like, the only way I can do both is if I build a company that has the SaaS platform that I can operate and build and scale that can advise and consult to be an operational extension of the teams that we work with. And that can also invest in the cream of the crowd love that didn't really exist in any manner that I could just go join a SaaS business or join a VC and do that in any sort of entrepreneurial way. It could only be built from scratch. So in essence, I kind of think about, you know, what York IE is, is the manifestation of everything I did operating in the startups I built operating in Oracle and also moonlighting as a, as an amateur, you know, angel investor advisor and board member. Uh, so that's really what the manifestation of York IE is. It was kind of an interesting thing when we sold the company. Um, there was about five of us who were our core C-suite who built the company along the way. Um, I know you've talked to the Orbit Group and Jeremy um, or Colby and Jeremy Hitchcock. You know, and Jeremy was the founding CEO. Jeremy was still on the board when we sold, but he had exited operating the business about a year prior. So, and so had the other um, three, three or four. Uh, folks who were on the executive team. So I was kind of like last man standing, you know, like, uh -huh. like we sold the company, we got the term sheet, we signed the definitive agreement. And I sort of looked around and you know, I had, of course, my lieutenants and my team that I had brought in over the years. And you always have those core loyalty, loyalists and collaborators in a company, right. even if they're not at the, at the C-suite. And actually two of them, Adam and Joe, are my two co-founders of York IE. A lot of the team members of our 15 people come from Dine and Oracle. Um, but, you know, I was kind of like left there and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm the one who needs to figure out how to like help Dyn integrate and make sure we have a good experience inside Oracle and make sure we have a, a new and reshaped vision. And that's why I stayed nearly three years, right? It was like, so it was like, yes, I had some money in the bank and we exited the company. And it was a huge high five moment. My wife and I, I think, took the kids and we went to Bermuda or something um, for, right. for like a long weekend uh, as, as the like core celebration, right? Um and that was all during like Zika virus and Florida time period. And my wife was pregnant. So like she couldn't uh, go anywhere. Um, actually the day, I, I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. The day that we um, closed the deal for Dine, uh, November 21st of uh, 2016, definitive agreement signed. I walked in my door that night after going to the bar with some colleagues. And my wife had gotten me a little box you know, that had the date on it. So congratulations, Dine sells the Oracle. It was really sweet of her. Um, and inside of it was a uh, positive pregnancy test for a third kid and a little baby girl. Right on. That day. So, so, so then we're like, all right, let's go to Bermuda. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but, but, but pretty quickly after that, I had to go run it for three years. And you know, you find out a lot about yourself. Um, you know, work is kind of like my hobby. I love this. And, you know, I do it all for, you know, to create an impact on my family, on my friends, on my colleagues, on the startups. I, work. I, I love this stuff, as you can't, if you can tell. I mean, I we've only tell. met a few times now and we're like, yeah. And I just love it. I mean, when people ask me, like, what's your hobby? It's like, well, I like sports. I love my family. Um, you know, I, I love startups and I love building businesses. I just, I think it's super fun. Um, so anyway, it's been, it's been interesting. Um, definitely life-changing, definitely foundational. I'm able to do York IE obviously on the backs of the success of Dime. And, you know, at Oracle, they pay you like a pro athlete to stick around. Um, and, you know, it gave us a lot of great opportunities and tremendous experience that we, we really tried to be like sponges in that place and take the good, you know, uh, that we yeah. like. Um, but obviously it's very different, very different than early stage startups. Nice. In terms of early stage startups, what are the ones that you love working with? What's ones 
you know, every, you know, angel, I've made a few angel investments, not nearly as many as you probably, but, you know, there's always a profile that I like in terms of an entrepreneur. Is there like one, like maybe a couple of stories off the top of your head where you just, you met the founder, that's all you needed was basically this person and their drive or just some quality about them or their company. Do you have anything like that? Or yeah, is you, are you a little bit I more mean, no, I'm a little bit, I mean, I think I'm a little bit more regimented at this point. You know, I look at market, team, traction, product, IP, financials. You know, we, we have a pretty rigid process now. I would say it's like an angel because um, now we run a syndicate model. So we've got 25 investment partners whose money yeah. is running through alongside our money. It's just a, it's, it's a profession, right? And we have a fiduciary responsibility to it. As an angel, though, I mean, you make lots of this for a lot of different reasons. You may not even love the entrepreneur's idea or technology or company, but you might love the entrepreneur and want to stay close, right? right? And you sling a small check. Um, but I would say pretty consistently for me, um, I've tried to have an investment thesis that's simple. Um, if five years from now, seven years from now, 10 years from now, this company goes public or has a strategic exit or flips it to a PE firm and has a life-changing event, would I drop everything I'm doing and go to the closing dinner? It's a simple question. Do yeah. I like this person enough that I would prioritize them over other things going on in my business life or my personal life and, and make that commitment to that? If they called me on the phone or texted me, you know, when we hang up this interview, am I going to get right back to them because I care for them and they care for me and we have a mutual respect? Um, those are the types of things I look for. I always tell people like you can't advise or consult or uh, be a colleague with a founder. Um, I've worked for technical founders and with technical founders. My bosses have all been engineers. You can't work with them if they're not willing to be worked with and it's not collaborative and complementary parts and there's not a mutual respect. The hardest work I do is when the entrepreneur we back or that we work with really doesn't want our help. It's the most unfulfilling, non-rewarding part. And so I think that's a big part of that sort of like relationship cultivation up front just to make sure it's like someone who will listen someone who values your expertise someone who my expertise and my team's expertise actually complements or plugs holes for we can't be all the same um yeah. and so that's really i think for me the biggest and most important piece that makes total sense and in terms of you know you've done a lot in your career already you could probably retire kyle like you know you don't have to keep going but let's think about, you know, the next five years for you, where would you like your IE to be in five years or like 10 years? Or do you even like think that far yeah. out? Um, oh, of course I do. I actually, everything I do in my entire life, I play the long game. I always say the two main core things that I do is play the long game and be loyal. And everything I've done from the moment I had a job was playing for how can I make the biggest and broadest level impact possible? You know, and I'd be lying to you to say that, you know, I don't also kind of use uh, money to keep score. I mean, it's a little bit of like, how do you know you're growing and evolving and, um, you know, being successful? Well, you know, I, I, I kind of do look at that, whether it's the company I'm building and what revenue I can bring in year on year, what my growth rate could be, how profitable I can make it, um, you know, how much of the, of the company can my team own and we don't have investors involved and things like that. Um, same thing personally, if you look at yourself as, you know, a, a company, Kyle York Inc. or Kyle and Katie York Inc., how do you, how do you kind of grow the, grow the pie? And, and yeah. that's a big, big part of it for me, right? And it's not, it's not um, 
self-serving or greedy or done for just personal gain to buy things or or whatever. I mean, it's it's just you know trying to make a bigger and broader impact. Um, a lot of what I've done with the money I've earned and made over the years in successful startup exits as an angel or as an operator is reinvested into the next wave of entrepreneurs and, and technology companies and startups. I'm, I'm heavily concentrated in my financial picture into the private company startup tech game, right? I just, yeah. I think that's where I can add, you know, create an unfair share. So yeah, I absolutely look really long game. I think if we flash forward on York IE in the long term, I mean, I'm building a much more modern Bain or um, McKinsey Consulting meets Gartner or Forrester IDC analyst firm meets, you know, um, the seed stage, you know, kind of flip, flip the script on venture capital model like a Sequoia or a battery, right? I think the opportunity for us is to, is really that large and really that diverse and really that unique. And you know, when I was creating York IE, I was like, I could be a little iBank, I could be a little seed fund, I could be a little PR shop, I could be a little analyst firm, or I could bite off and kick each of them in the shins a little bit, try to vertically integrate it all. And that could be the differentiation and the moat and the and the larger opportunity for all of us. And that's what we're trying to create. Nice. And what do you typically look for in terms of like company size that you ex or you enter a company? Is it the series A, is series B, C, or are you just all Yeah, so on the investment uh, yeah, on the investment side, we are like pre-revenue, like earliest stage, like pre-seed, seed stage, all the way to series A. We re really don't go later because you know we still are a uh, smaller syndicate and we're really trying to get in as early as possible to help shape their brand and go to market motion moving forward. I mean, that that's our core differentiation. But the reality of a lot of our experience is that, you know, I took Dyne, you know, from 3 million to 100 and then to 150 inside Oracle and, you know, helped run strategy for a billion plus P&L and Oracle Cloud infrastructure, right? So, so when you look at it, like our actual muscle and a lot of our expertise is growth stage, right. right? And more later stage than even where we write checks. So that's why we've expanded the advisory and consulting engagements more up market because that's not where we're investing today, right? So it enables us to keep those mus muscles sharp um, and to add value to companies pretty much on, the, on a similar journey to what we were able to do at Dime. I think it's awesome because you can also get certain things right in the beginning. Like you go to market motion, you know, the marketing strategy, the sales strategy, helping them figure out if enterprise makes sense or if it doesn't make sense. So they don't waste, you know, millions of dollars going on market. We, we always tell the tier one venture capital firms who, who write bigger checks and come in later in the growth equity firms and the private equity firms, companies that are York IE companies, damn well better be more mature, more sophisticated by the time they yeah. get to you, right? And and you'll be happy that we were on the cap table and that we were involved and we had our hybrid model and tentacles into these companies. And, you know, hopefully they're in just a far better position for future scale uh, because of it. Because I, I think a lot of um, tech founders, a lot of people we back are SMEs from their space or their engineers. They typically kick like brand building and marketing and comms and, you know, uh, kind of like value drivers and, um, all the things that we think is important. And then obviously scaling, go to market and building, go to market leadership teams, yeah. methodologies. They typically push that stuff like just a little later. And I, we just think if you can do that stuff earlier and, and in cost effective ways, I mean, I remember early dime, we had like CFO consultants and, 
sales training consultants and analyst firms, and you add it all up, I mean, it's literally highway robbery for an early stage company with small budgets, uh, even with budgets or VC, it's highway robbery. So is there a way to sort of downscope, automate, still provide the strategic value, but also deliver uh, transactional value? Like, again, that's what we're trying to do through a lot of the automation of our of our fuel platform. It's more of a constant, steady um, beat of it. That's awesome. And I think the best part too is you've, you've been through this yourself. Like you've been in the trenches, you know what an entrepreneur like really is feeling. You've been through that go-to-market or that product market fit you know, pull when things are just going absolutely up and to the right. So that's awesome. So don't, I also don't, I also don't glamorize it. I mean, I think the um, startups are, are over glamorized and you know this, I mean, they're really, 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 really hard to build. And, you know, um, not everything goes great all the time. You, you have, you know, have a key hire who pulls out on you. You have colleague or friend that you need to let go uh, you have a customer who, uh, you know, fires you. <laughs> um, bad things, micro crises happen every day. I mean, everyone right now is talking so much about COVID and the economy. And, you know, it's like, there's always going to be macro crises. There's always going to be micro crises. It's sort of how you respond, how you iterate, how you evolve, how you adapt. And again, I think it's really, really hard. So be, having an entrepreneur, having a team like us who are, who are entrepreneurs, in their corner thinking like entrepreneurs and we got to maintain that right um yeah. even as investors i think is really really important because if they view us as, as on their side helping build the company having honest conversations about hey hey ceo you know you're you're really really not good at running product maybe we should hire a vp of product you know like yeah. you're really good at the following things like there's a way to give them the sugar um you know and the sour at the same time and i just I just feel like I lived it. I didn't think my VCs um, always had our be our best interests in mind. They had their LPs and their money's best interest in mind. I get they were always trying to do what they thought was right, but you know I felt like it was at the expense of a lot of a lot of headaches and a lot of sleepless nights that just didn't need to happen. Um, so again, we try to keep that still very pragmatic and honest and direct. And the only way you do that is if you build. Um, relationships and good communication channels and it's based on trust and it's based on living a day in their shoes yeah do you ever play like the role of like a ceo coach because you're essentially in a way helping them see their blind spots like yeah not that totally good sales good at marketing good at product but i yeah. think we try to we try to play executive team coach because i think what i mean i love founders i'm now i'm now one right i, I wasn't a founder of don i think a lot of the focus is on the founders and the founder CEO, founder CTO. Um, and I think it's important when you come in as advisors or investors that you embrace, you know, the company and the team and you make yeah. yourself available and you create mechanisms that anybody who might need some guidance. Uh, just last week, I was talking to a, a Marcom manager of a $3 million ARR company um, because she wanted a little guidance and help on how to better work with the CEO. You know, like that should be yeah. okay too, right? Um, but it's only okay if there's trust and there's a safe haven that that's an appropriate thing. And it's not like the heavy hand of the board member or the investor coming in mm -hmm. or like, you know, there's any squirrely back channeling for bad sake. It's got to all be for the positive because you're super aligned. Again, that goes back though to the dating process and making sure that you can even ever get there. You're not going to get there on day one. But you can generally tell if people are going to be 
you know, open to collaboration and feedback and um, all that. So yeah, it's definitely, definitely, I think a big part of it. We don't call it out and call it CEO coaching, but I'm sure if you talk to a bunch of our companies, that's what they tell you, you know, it's we're, we want to be the first call. That's awesome. So, you know, you've, you've accomplished a lot in your work, career, life. Um, but for just the final questions, Kyle, again, congrats on all your success. Like you sound like an amazing individual. Thank you. Yeah. Your accomplishments are incredible. And I, I love your approach that you're taking with entrepreneurs, not just adding, you know, you know, financial capital, but bring your experience to the table. I think that's amazing. Um, but what do you like to do for fun? Like, what do you do? I know you said startup sports. Um, yeah, like yeah, yeah. So sports I, team. What do you do when like, you know, you're on the weekend? What's a little personal? Yeah, so I, I, I grew up um, in a family of, I have four brothers. So there's five sons and everybody's around here raising their families. Um, so, you know, we all get together a lot on weekends. Um, you know, I grew up, I played college football at Bentley and Waltham Mass, Division II football. And so big football fan. So right now it's crazy uh, with the Patriots and different quarterback and COVID and so much crazy stuff going on. But yeah, I mean, big sports fan. You uh, spend you, tons, tons you, of time you, with family. Do you miss uh, Tom Brady? How you doing without him? Of course I miss Tom Brady. He's like an absolute legend, the best football player who's ever played the game, the best winner. Um, but yeah, I love seeing him do well in Tampa. Um, but yeah, I like Cam Newton. He's kind of fun. You know, he's totally different, totally dynamic. He brings in a different energy of the team. Uh, we'll see how it all plays out. You cannot win every year. We've been very spoiled in Boston sports. You, um, guys, you definitely have. I have a friend in Boston and he always jokes like, I said, how, how's everybody doing without Tom? And he's like, they're either mad or moving to Florida or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, it might be easier to go to a game in Tampa than it is up here, you know, post COVID. Yeah. So I get involved all that, you know, we, um, we're in the outdoors up here. So we spend a lot of time on the lake in the summers and skiing in the winters and, I got little kids, so you know a lot of our, our a lot of our life is two boys and a girl, and it's just it's just perfect. And and I think that's what entrepreneurs need to remember: like what you're playing for. Like you can have all the success in the world in your day job, but make sure that that actually you can bear the fruits of that in your home life and with your friends and your family. And um, that that's the that's the most rewarding part of all of it. I mean, I think it just opens up and enables so much uh, if you let it. If you let the work consume you, and you let the mental health challenges of building a startup consume you uh it makes it really hard to be happy and it makes it really hard to you know uh i think be fun to be around and, and create a good life for yourself so it's just a good reminder for everybody to keep that balance yeah i agree with that in terms of um you know entrepreneurs you admire what are maybe like the top two well i mean growing up i always my favorite has been richard branson um you know i always love the virgin family of brands and sort of you know he chose like very established markets and was just like, I'm going to be as disruptive as possible in each of them. And, and part of that was branding. Part of that was the product and service offerings he brought to those markets. And a lot of that was just sort of bravado and, 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 and going for it. And I just always, always have admired that. Uh, and Richard Branson, um, this day and age, you know, geez, I, 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 so many of these entrepreneurs have become like, you know, friends and peers and contemporaries. And, you know, I just admire so many companies that are sort of bucking trends and, and sort of following different playbooks and having just tremendous success. I don't know if I want to name one in that sort of vein, but there's just so many that 
Um, you know, a lot of them are now investment partners with York IE or, you know, starting new companies, calling us to back them. Um, and I just, I, I'm just, anybody who's willing to you know, quit their jobs, make a bet on startups and doing entrepreneurship. I mean, I admire, I admire all those people who are the rebel rousers and those game changers. That's awesome. And then maybe two favorite books or your favorite book to recommend anyone. Yeah. I mean, there's two books I love. Um, one is actually in college. I read it as part of my college internship. Um, it was called don't send a resume. Um, it was a Jeffrey Fox book and it was, you know, in essence, send a resume, but stand out and yeah. don't do what everybody else does. It's a, it's a very short read. Um, I think it's even been called how to like be the CEO. It's, it's got an evolved title now, but look up Jeffrey Fox. And the other one, I absolutely love an old classic by Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich. Um, it's just flips your perspective. I mean, I drew, grew up in a great family, small local business, family business, but certainly not from uh, wealth. And, you know, when you read a book like Think and Grow Rich, or there's another one by Steve Seibold, How Rich People Think, um, they're great reads for people who are trying to climb the pinnacle of startup life and eventually find a monetization event and create generational wealth. Uh, those are two just phenomenal books as well. Awesome. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. If people want to learn more about you, where can they find you online? Yeah, perfect. So yeah, I'm all over the interwebs. Uh, you can find me at kyork20 is my name on Twitter. Uh, but York IE is at york.ie. Uh, that's our website. Uh, we're also at York Growth across all other social channels. So we look forward to catching up with you out there. Awesome. Well, Kyle, thank you again for joining me on the show. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you.